Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. First Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 5. This is the Word of God. But I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he translates, so that the church may receive edification. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy of teaching, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? For if the trumpet produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue a word that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of sounds in the world, and none is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the sound, I will be the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may translate. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the uninformed say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. All right, we're going to stop there. No, we're not. Uh, hold on just a moment. Uh, Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, we're going to stop there. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation. Lord, we humble ourselves now before you in this moment and ask that you open our eyes and ears to see the truth of your word. Well, there are things that we, we, seek to, we seek to understand, but we don't know exactly how it all worked back then. And so we do seek for your understanding that you would show us the truth in your word and that we may live by, uh, Lord, what your word says and not our own opinions and not the traditions of men or the framework of the religion made by men so lord it's all all uh, on you now to open our eyes and our ears to see what the word really says in jesus name i pray amen, amen. so i want to point out right from the beginning that i have uh, no desire to convince anyone to believe um, 
my point of view because I think that, you know, this passage of Scripture and the subject of tongues is, is a difficult one. It's one that causes a great deal of turmoil in the modern-day church. When I was a child, uh, most of the encounters I had with folks who practiced uh, modern-day speaking in tongues, it became an issue where they would come into the church. Uh, most of the time since I was raised Baptist, they would come into the Baptist church. They would begin speaking in tongues. They would try to convince everybody to do so. There would wind up, there would be a church split uh, over the subject matter, and then and it would just essentially destroy the church. And I believe that if you're doing something right, if you're correct in what you're teaching, if you're getting God's word right, it's going to unify the church. It's not going to split the church. So um, I want to say that it's important that for each of us, with diligence, we do everything we can to understand to the furthest degree what this actually means. We can't just make stuff up, and we shouldn't just go by what our denomination taught us or what mom and dad taught us or whatever the case may be. We should go with what Scripture says. Now, in my research, one author said that he read over 50 books on the subject of the gift of tongues, and no one agreed on everything, okay? And that tells you that this is a difficult text. But here's what I want you to understand. Overall, overall, uh, Paul is making a point, and he makes it crystal clear. And um, who was doing what and, and how they were doing it is not so much what we need to focus on. What we need to focus on was how did Paul correct it? What was the overall solution? And that is crystal clear today. So remember there were several things happening at once in the church of Corinth. Uh, this spiritual gift of tongues was being abused in various different ways. And there, there are several reasons for that. Some folks in the church were faking the gift. And they were engaging in this form of jibber-jabber, speaking mysteries as they once did in their former Greco-Roman pagan religion. If you flip over real quick, flip over to 1 Corinthians 12 and look at verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. The reason I bring this up is because we don't see this in the text. It's historical context. But Paul brings it up here and we should take note of it that there was this mystery religion in their day. These were the, the, it was the polytheism of the Greeks and the Romans. So 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, and remember, folks, that the word gifts is not in the text. That's something that the translators put in there. It basically just says concerning spirituals, brothers, Concerning spiritual things. So all things spiritual in the church, okay? I do not want you to be ignorant, he says. Do not be ignorant. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were being led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the details, we don't know uh, if this particular issue here was by accident, someone saying Jesus is accursed, okay? So you're in the congregation on the Lord's day, you're worshiping, and someone says Jesus is accursed, and most likely it was done in a tongue, okay? In a language. Um, and so... 
We don't know if this was by accident. Were they just copying something they heard someone else in their pagan religion say, and they said it with the name Jesus, and, it, and they said Jesus is accursed? Or perhaps uh, it could have potentially been a, a rare occasion in which this ecstatic pagan worship in their, in their frenzy could have been done so or manipulated by a demon and a demon actually spoke through them and said Jesus is accursed. So that's what I'm talking about when I say it's a difficult text understanding exactly what was going on in the church. We know that someone at some point claiming to be in the power of the Holy Spirit most likely, as I said in another language, was influenced or led astray by a false spirit, not the Holy Spirit, actually spoke Jesus is accursed, and obviously this would be unacceptable. Now imagine someone heard this who knew the language that it was said in, and obviously someone had to have been there. Uh, I suppose it could have been said outright. That's also a possibility. But someone heard it, and it got back to Paul's ears, and that's why Paul is bringing this up in this, in this letter here. So there were others misusing the genuine gift, speaking in an actual language that they already knew, hoping that there would be an interpreter in their midst, and therefore they would come across uh, more spiritual, okay? Um, yet there were others who did at times use the gift properly as God designed the gift of tongues to be used. So Paul is here in this passage, he's addressing all of these issues, all of the abuses all of the ways it takes place, and he's lining out for the local church exactly how this is supposed to take place in the first century church. You will see in our passage again that he doesn't pick it apart issue by issue. He deals with the larger issue. He makes clear that a genuine act of the Holy Spirit or a manifestation of the spiritual gift will always have two distinguishing markers. Two markers, and here are my rules that I want you guys to take note of this morning. Rule number one concerning spiritual gifts, it is always about building others up. It is never about building yourself up. It is always about building others up. It is never about building yourself up. Rule number two, in the case of tongues, a very specific way of knowing for certain that this was indeed an act of the Holy Spirit is that everyone could understand it. Everyone could understand it. Not, not right away, but there had to be interpreter. You understand? So it had to build everybody up, and it wasn't about you, and everybody had to be able to understand it. Those are our two rules this morning. So if those two things were not covered, then it was not the Holy Spirit. It was somebody acting in their flesh, or perhaps even a, a manipulation, as we see Paul mention demons in this book several times. Remember when they were abusing the Lord's Supper? He said, you are drinking the cup of demons. So it's not like he has not brought that into the picture for them, that you were pagans, you were familiar with demons in your worship, and now you're bringing that stuff into the house of God. Do you understand? Every once in a while, if you'll just nod, if you get real excited, you can say an amen. It just means that you're awake and you understand, or maybe you, uh, you know, it's a good point, okay? So since Paul later clarifies 
that it's a sign for unbelievers, and he gives him and he himself uses it often for that reason. He states in the text, if used in the church, it does the same thing. To be clear, if the gift is being used correctly, people can understand the gospel being preached, and as a result, people will come to Christ. This is not just a self-edifying, selfish gift. And this is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 14.5, if you'll look there, 1 Corinthians 14.5, I wish you all spoke in tongues. But then we see again the priority of this gift immediately. Now remember, we're talking about the context of a first century church. But immediately the priority uh, of this gift, he says in the very next statement, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he translates so that the church may receive edification. And we see our rules manifested in this text over and over again. He says he wants them all to prophesy. And again, when we come to that word, Colton and I and Cassie and Krista uh, had a great conversation about this this week. But when we, uh, about the word prophesy and what is prophesying, because I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding, and rightly so. Um, there is one form of, a, well, here's what I want to say. When we come to that word, immediately we, must, we almost all think of telling the future, somehow foretelling something, you know, that, uh, you know, like Darth Vader is going to balance the force, right, in the movies. And we think that the Old Testament, all those, all those prophecies uh, about Christ's coming, those are all uh, foretelling scriptures, okay? Telling the future before it happens. And there is most certainly one form of prophesying that fits that description of foretelling, uh, God revealing to men what was going to come. And we also have a form of saying what's going to happen right now, that thus saith the Lord, this is what's going to happen. And I believe that that was very likely active in that first century church. But as uh, Paul is saying... Is Paul saying here, when he says that I, I would rather you all prophesy, is he saying I would have you all prophesy in a way that's foretelling of the future? Is that what Paul's saying to the congregation? I don't believe so. So if not, then what is prophecy? How can we define prophecy in the most general sense in Scripture? Well, if we look at the actual root meaning of the word, the basic word comes from prophemi in the Greek, pro meaning before, and phimai meaning to speak. And what it actually means is to speak before. So literally to speak before an audience, to speak in front of someone in public, and that is its very simplest form. And, and we all know there are words that have different meanings and even different depths. So we use them in different ways. Well, what about the Old Testament prophets? Well, some of their message was passed and some of it was regarding the present, and obviously a lot of it was regarding the future. So I believe that to narrow the meaning of the word prophecy to only a future-telling proclamation is unnecessary, and I do think it leads to confusion. Uh, a Greek or Hebrew in this day, if you were to use this word, they knew what it meant. It meant to speak publicly. So then for us, for the body, what is the spiritual gift of prophecy? Well, it entails all those things, but it's not just one narrow definition. Put very simply, from its root definition, is the ability given by the Spirit of God to a person to proclaim.
proclaim God's truth to others. It's a speaking gift, all right? And if you look back at verse 3, it says, But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and encouragement. And then if you look in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 10, Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down, you can. Revelation 19, verse 10, it says, For the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So when it says for the witness, that's the evidence. That's the testimony. So the for the witness, the evidence, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit, the core, the thrust of prophecy. It's the whole point. So just consider this. The Old Testament prophets spoke before the people. They proclaimed the truth of God, past, present, and future, for edification, exhortation, and encouragement. Much of it pointed to Christ. Even back then, the spirit of prophecy was to point to Jesus, the coming Messiah, and then His second coming. Again, in the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles, the spirit of prophecy was the same thing, proclaiming God's truth about Jesus. And then remember, there can be various kinds of prophecy, as I said, and it's clear there's a distinct foretelling form in the Old Testament and in the apostolic age. So that form was active here in the church, but I believe that when he groups it together with other forms of public speaking, we'll see in a moment, that he's distinguishing that particular form of prophecy. But that form of prophecy, you have to understand, biblically ended with the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in the last revelation of Jesus Christ. That was the end of that form of foretelling uh, prophecy. And uh, we may see it once again. It's possible we'll see it once again in, during the tribulation in Revelation with the two witnesses that come. And many believe that those are actually Moses and Elijah. We don't really know who that is. It could be anybody that God wants it to be. So we don't get down in the weeds too much about stuff like that. But all forms of prophecy all serve the same purpose overall. And even in this period of church history today, post-New Testament, the spirit of prophecy is still exactly the same. God wants us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, okay? To prophesy should be our priority, and it is the priority of Christ's church. So in its broadest sense, understand what I'm saying, in its broadest sense, a preacher prophesies, the teacher prophesies, the evangelist prophesies, the missionary prophesies as long as they are giving witness or testimony or evidence about Jesus Christ. So let's continue to verse 5. But I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he translates so that the church, the entire church, may receive edification. So do you understand that to speak in tongues genuinely, it must be understood? It must be understood. Otherwise, um, it's pointless. It, again, it testifies to Jesus, and it edifies the one who actually truly grasps the truth of what's being said. Now, Paul's about to use various examples, and if it weren't, in fact, the Holy Spirit inspiring each word, we may actually believe that Paul is like, belaboring the point, like, as we would say, use the, the figure of speech that he's beating a dead horse, you know, because he's just over and over, he's really making this point. In verse 6, here's what he says. 
But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? He's purposely pounding this point over and over again to be certain that they get it, that they understand. The message must be understood or there's no point to it, okay? And then verse 7, Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? You know, I know a lot of you really enjoy music. I know that I do. It's been a huge part of my life. Musical instruments are incredible. And I'm really thankful for the people who put the time and effort into learning how to play an instrument. It's, it's, it's wonderful. We get a great deal of enjoyment from that. I know I do. I'm sure some of you do as well. Have you ever heard somebody play an instrument who had no prior knowledge of how actually to play the instrument? It's awesome for about three seconds, right? Um, growing up, our family almost always had a piano in the house. And my dad was a pastor, so sometimes the kids from the church would come over. Matter of fact, when we started uh, the first church, when I was real little, um, we started in our house and uh, in Casper, Wyoming. And um, so kids would come over, and inevitably, uh, a child would go over to the piano and just start banging on the keys, right? You've all heard it, right? You've all heard that. That is not enjoyable. That is not enjoyable. But I do have one friend that could sit down at the piano and on those very same keys, he could play this tune that I love called Claire de Lune. It's just a beautiful song and it is, it is moving when he plays that. He plays it with emotion and he plays those keys in a way that just moves you. And there are many instruments that do the same thing. Well, Speaking in tongues with no interpreter is like banging on a piano. You're using sounds, but there's nothing to it. There's no, there's no meaning to it. It's, it's got the same kind of uh, sense to it. Speaking in tongues is like banging on a piano unless someone is there to interpret and bring meaning to the whole thing. Verse 8, For if the, if the trumpet produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So not only is it beautiful and meaningful, um, but he's making the point that sometimes there's a meaning in the notes, in the, in the tones that they're playing. So these distinct sounds prompt us, they move us to action. And if the trumpeter in the cavalry plays a long monotone note that no one even understands. Y'all know what the cavalry trumpet sounds like, right? There's a specific sound, and everybody knows, hey, it's time to get up and get ready, and we're going to charge into battle. Well, if that, if that particular uh, reverie or whatever they call it isn't played, those particular notes are not played, then the soldiers will not wake up. They will not ready themselves for the battle ahead, and they'll be caught unaware, and, and obviously they'll face the consequences. Verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue a word that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So he uses those instruments being misused in the same context as using language or the, the tongue to be misused by human beings in the context of the church. 
Again, tongues without understanding does not move you. It does not prompt you to action. It has no meaning at all. It is pointless. Is everybody getting Paul's point here? But he belabors the point, so I'm going to belabor the point, okay? We're going to keep going here. Uh, Verse 10, there are perhaps a great many sounds, kinds of sounds in the world, and none is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the sound, I will be able, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now, this is really interesting. This word barbarian is exactly like the words that we read Jesus speak in Matthew when he told them not to speak with vain repetition as the pagans do. And he said, do not, remember it was onomatopoeic, and he, it was like a sound. The word came from a sound. And he says, when you pray, basically, don't pray bata, 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 bata. It's hilarious because in my research, I saw a video and I literally saw a preacher like slaying people in the spirit and he'd go bata, bata, bata. He said the exact word in Greek that Jesus said not to use uh, in, in praying. But but uh, what Paul is saying here uh, He's saying, if you can't understand me, I may as well be saying bar, 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 bar. It's a repetitious onomatopoeic word. Uh, Bar, bar, bar. Not bata, 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 but bar, bar, bar. And they're exactly the same. If I'm saying either one to you, you don't know what in the world I'm saying, right? Okay, that's his point. uh, That that's all they're going to hear. And this is where we get the word barbarian. Obviously, as time went on, uh, it became, you know... It had to do with more of these invading armies and the violence that came along with that. Uh, If you lived in the 80s, you know the movie Conan the Barbarian, right? Some of you guys might know that one. But but that's what it means. You know the word barbar, the repetition there, is like bata bata. It's it's an onomatopoeic word. And and Paul's saying it does nobody any good. The exact same way that Jesus said praying in that way does nobody any good. Verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts or spiritual things, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Zealously seek to abound in spiritual things for the sake of everyone. Zealously, are you hearing me? Listen to this. This is what he's saying. This is the whole point. Zealously seek to abound in spiritual things for the sake of everyone. Make it your sole purpose to grow in Christ. Yours, your sole purpose. Don't worry about your neighbor because as you grow, you're going to cut, you're going to edify your neighbor, okay? Make it your sole purpose to grow, to become Christ-like, to pray more, to read God's word more often, and to overflow in the fruits of the spirit. See, that's how it spills over. In onto your neighbor and to your family and all the people that you love. You're growing in Christ. You're growing in spiritual things. You're zealous seeking after it. You make it your priority and everyone around you benefits and especially in the context of the local church. It'll benefit the whole church body. And being a part of the local body, I think, is so weird our mindset today we go to a church because we think it's for us, right? We go there because what are they doing for our kids? And what are they doing for my wife and I? And what are they, right? And that's kind of the mindset. But when you go to a church, your purpose in a church 
is to serve others sacrificially. You grow in Christ so you can pour yourself out to everyone around you. That's the whole point. That's why we're here. So yes, we individually grow in Christ, and in doing so, it spills over onto everyone else. And you don't have to focus on what do I get. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They wanted to be uh, raised in spiritual status in the eyes of everyone around them, and they were faking and falsifying the gifts of the Holy Spirit, doing terrible things, wicked things, in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's what was going on. Paul is saying, you were jealously seeking spiritual gifts, but you really need to zealously seek spiritual gifts for the right reasons. That's what he's saying. So what was our rule number one about spiritual gifts? It's always about building others up. It's never about you. It's never about you. Verse 13, Therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may translate. And once again, pretty simple, very clear, covering our two rules. What was our rule number two in the case of tongues? That you know for certain it's an act of the Holy Spirit because everyone understands it whether it's everyone understanding it when it's first spoken or there's an interpreter in the room in that day and they translated it or interpreted it for everybody in the room to be edified. Verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now I find this really interesting that in the context of this entire passage here, many claim to be faithful to the text and they take this verse and they twist it completely out of the context of a rebuke from Paul. And the reason is they want to use a few of these verses right here because they're the only ones in the Bible, okay? They want to use it to support their theology of tongues as a private prayer language. And if you think about how explicit Paul is being on the subject with one example after another, it's baffling that someone would take this text and actually draw from it in that way. So let me ask you a question, moms and, da moms and dads. When you're correcting your children, do you ever do something like this? Do not ever hit your sister in the face with a tomato again. But when you do use a tomato, especially on a BIT, find BLT, find one that's really, really ripe and slice it real thin, put a little sauce on there. It's so, so, so good. But don't you ever, ever hit your sister in the face with a tomato again. Do you see how that works there? That's what they're asking you to believe this means here. That in the middle of a rebuke, Paul then turns to giving them some sort of positive instruction and very, very uh, vague at that in how to speak in some unknown prayer language. Um. Again, I believe that it most likely connects to a pagan practice because he's referencing the gift in plural when he references it in, in references, pardon me, guys, I am tongue twisted this morning, but when he references it in plural, tongues, it means languages, and we know that there are many actual languages. But when he says a tongue in the singular, it implies only one kind of speaking or uh, jibber-jabbering that you would describe it as best. You wouldn't ask somebody what kind of jibber-jabber do you speak because it's all 
jibber-jabber. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's all the same thing. It's all unintelligible speech. But tongues, plural, implies actual distinct languages that are being spoken that can be interpreted, okay? So let me put it to you this way. Again, I have no understanding about how to play the piano properly, so I could say this. If I play on a piano, I'm working hard myself. I'm trying real hard, but the music is unfruitful, okay? So he's saying, do you see how that works? And, and put it in the context of the passage before. If I play on a piano, I'm working hard, but my music is unfruitful. So he says, if I, if I pray in a tongue, but there's no understanding, it's, you're speaking to the air. It's pointless. It's unfruitful. Paul says, if I pray in unintelligible speech, I'm working hard in my own power and my own spirit, but my mind is unfruitful. Because praying in a tongue privately with no understanding, that would do you no good either if you can't understand what you're saying. And again, that is the exact opposite of what Jesus told us, how he told us to pray in Matthew. So if you're doing that today, you're actually disobeying what Jesus instructed in Matthew. There in no way, this and no other verse in Scripture in no way implies a private prayer language. It's simply referring to, I believe, that, that uh, historic, historically relevant pagan form of speaking that had been brought into the church. Remember verse 2 where he says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to a God, because there's no uh, definite article there before God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. That's one possible trans translation that I've read, possibly referring to what they call the mystery religions in their day. And this is all historically uh, accurate. You can read books about it and find that they worship in the mystery religions. So banging on a piano, same as speaking in an unknown tongue. With no understanding, no purpose, no edification, and even potentially praying in the context of the church to a pagan god in, again, that, that mystery religion that they all worship and were saved out of, but they drug it back into the church. Now, some say that, but to God, and th this is kind of parsing some of these details that I was telling you about, some say that but to God is a reference to a Jewish figure of speech where we actually get the saying, God only knows. Like, what's he doing? God only knows or who knows. Like, he's speaking. It's not, it's, not, it's not actually affirming it. It's saying nobody knows. It's like pointless, okay? God only knows. Verse 15. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. So here he's, he's getting to the point. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. He's, again, very explicit here. He says, we are supposed to do everything we do to the best of our ability in accordance with the Holy Spirit and understanding. We do everything with understanding. We should not ever detach our mind from our spiritual endeavors. Ever, ever, ever. We should never untether our our thinking, our understanding, our mind when we are zealously seeking spiritual things. And to do so is spiritually perilous. It's dangerous to empty your mind. We find various forms of pagan meditation even today 
different forms of meditation and prayer in other false religions, and they tell you to empty your mind. Empty your mind and pray or meditate on these particular words or phrases or bar, 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 or bata, 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 okay? And that's what they do. Spiritual growth is always bound to knowledge and understanding of God's Word. Always. You do not mature or grow if there is no knowledge or understanding. And the word knowledge is in the Old Testament around 107 times, and it's 50 times in the New Testament, the word knowledge. And we grow spiritually in the knowledge of the truth of God's Word. It sanctifies us. It renews our mind so that we will have the mind of Christ. I said before, the more we renew our mind in the washing of the Word, we begin to think like Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We see from God's perspective. We love people the way God loves people. We love our families and lead our families the way God has created us to love and lead our families. And we act uh, toward one another in the context of the local church the way God designed and purposed His church to be. And that all comes from understanding God's Word. None of it, no true knowledge comes from a lack of understanding and just pulling things out of the air. Because we know Scripture tells us that there are various spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit, and we have no clue how many false demonic spirits there are out there in the world. Not to mention man's willful, wicked flesh, you know, trying to serve himself. And we deal, we contend with that as well. So we should never ever do something spiritual if our mind is unfruitful because it does nobody any good. Verse 16, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the uninformed say the amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you're saying, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. The other person is not edified. So again, he's, he's going through this over and over and over. He's, he's repeating the theme. So the Corinthian people, it's crystal clear to them. By the time they get through this passage, they should know what Paul's trying to say to them. Okay? So let's give one, someone the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they're praying in accordance with the Holy Spirit in their language, but it's not understood. No one but that person is edified. Uh, therefore, the practice would be unacceptable. Okay? We know it isn't the Holy Spirit doing it because the Holy Spirit, if it were the Holy Spirit, would provide an interpreter for the edification of the whole body. It's a pretty simple little one-two rule there that just makes it all make sense. So in order to fulfill both scriptural rules that Paul outlined, it has to be understood and it has to edify everyone. So the Apostle Paul validates that there is, in fact, a genuine spiritual gift of tongues or languages, and he says he uses it often in verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Those two words, 10,000, are actually translated in that way. But if we take a look at the, the Greek, that word uh, really is something interesting. It, it's the word myrius, and it means numberless or countless or infinite, okay? So Paul is actually making 
a really solid point here to the people. He's saying that I would rather speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than infinite words in an unknown tongue, okay? Two weeks ago, I mentioned that our study of the spiritual gift of tongues in this passage would make three things very clear to all of us as we read through this passage. First was the priority of the gift of tongues in the church. The second was the point of the gift of tongues in the church. And the third was the process of the gift of tongues in the church. And we very clearly see that the priority of the gift of tongues in the church is secondary to prophecy. And still, we're talking about the apostolic age. We're talking about gifts that I personally believe Scripture tells us uh, slowed down, and eventually, once the Word of God was delivered to the church, it became redundant, and that tongues themselves ceased. So, uh, prophecy proclaims the truth about Jesus in a way that it can be understood by everyone. And in that Corinthian church, the gift of tongues with an interpreter at its best served as a supernatural sign to validate that it was in fact God speaking. So when they saw this take place in the local church, in the apostolic age, before they had the Bible, they knew this was God speaking. Just like when they received a letter from Paul or Peter or James or whomever, if they got that from one of the 12 apostles, they knew it was from God. Same thing with speaking in tongues. If it was done in a supernatural way and there was an interpreter, they knew it was from God. And that's the whole point of the gift of tongues in the church. First, to be understood, and secondly, to edify the entire local body of Christ.